Welcome to the Preacher's Podcast for Proper 21 in Year A. We are continuing our series called Tell Us a Story as we listen to some of the parables of Jesus later on in Matthew's Gospel and apply those truths to ourselves and to our listeners today. Uh, you can read more about the series and find other outreach resources and coordinated resources on the foundation at wellscongregationalservices.net. Our preachers for this series, Pastor Jay Zahn from Trinity Lutheran Church in Waukesha, Wisconsin, and Pastor John Quinn from Beautiful Savior Lutheran Church in Monk's Corner, South Carolina. So Jay and John, thanks for coming back and being a part of this series. Uh, John Quinn, let's start with you. Uh, tell us a little bit about Proper 21 in Year A. What's the main thought you want worshipers to be thinking about this Sunday? Sure. We've, you know, we're in this series on, on parables, all the lessons tie, tie together. And we've been looking at, you know, what the kingdom of God is like. And last week, we definitely saw that the, the operating principle in God's kingdom is not merit, not getting what we, we earn, but it's grace. It's getting what we don't deserve. And so it's not, it's not fairness on the part of God, but it's generosity and today we really get to see what that that grace and generosity of God produces in the lives of Christians, um, what it looks like to really be a Christian. And so um, God's grace doesn't lead Christians to want to continue on in a life of sin, but God's grace also doesn't lead Christians to just want to go through the motions, lip service, um, just going through the spiritual motions, saying and and doing things that that look good. So if last week we had watchwords like like merit and fairness and grace and generosity, um, this week, as some of the materials share with us, we're looking at words like fake, disingenuous, insincere. Mm -hmm. And we all, nobody likes fake, disingenuous, insincere people. And we would hate to be accused of being those things. And so we're really looking for what is what is real, what is genuine, what is sincere. Um, in the Christian faith and life, because God wants us to be real. He sees through anything that's that's not real. Um, he wants real repentance and true obedience. Um, Christianity is not about keeping up appearances. Um, it's not about um, it's not about um, just acting or saying the right things. Um, it's about a real change of heart, a real change of mind that's demonstrated in that life of real repentance and and real obedience. And so what this week really gives us the opportunity to do is to explore the source of spiritual sincerity, uh, where it comes from, what it is, what it isn't, um, what does it look like in the life of a Christian? What does it not look like in our lives? And even then, what are the implications for how we, we look at and live with others? So what is real, genuine, sincere, grace-based Christianity? And what is real, genuine, sincere, grace-based Based Christian community look like in practice. Yeah, thank you for that really helpful summary, zeroing, zeroing us in on that theme of insincerity versus sincerity in the lives of God's people. Uh, Jay Zahn, let's go to you next. We're going to focus on the gospel as we are throughout this series, but before we get to that, can you talk to us a little bit about the first and second reading for the day? What are some points of connection between the three? Thanks, John. I uh, it, it's interesting because I think there's um, the the other two lessons have a kind of sincerity. Well, the first one has a kind of sincerity built into it, 
uh, Old Testament lesson from Ezekiel 18. And when I say a kind of sincerity, the, the people of Israel are uh, living outside of their homeland, and they are complaining about uh, that this is unjust, what God has done to them, that this is the the fault of their forefathers, and and so their forefathers should have been the ones to suffer, not not they. And so God was being um, unfair to them. And uh, one of the things that that um, is striking about that is that, that they meant it; they were they were fully convinced of the the, the truth of that. Um, but God calls them on the carpet for it because they they also obviously lacked a uh, an awareness of their own uh, shortcomings, their own faults, and their own failures. And and that's a common human issue. We can see other people who are worse sinners than us, and we use it as a way of um, avoiding our own responsibility, our, our own uh, way in which we've contributed to the issues of the problems of the world and of our own lives. It's easier to be the victim, and and, uh, and especially if we're the victim of God, God is treating us unfairly. So the, the insincere part, I think, in this lesson is uh, it's a failure to be truthful with myself with ourselves about what's really going on in the heart and uh, God sees right through all of that. So no, no amount of, of um, sophistry with argumentation is going to convince God otherwise. And so it's a much better approach to, to simply come clean and, and uh, stand before God as I truly am and, and beg for his mercy because that's where mercy is found. Uh, the second lesson Philippians chapter two is true sincerity, which is Jesus Christ. Uh, he, he's the one who, uh, did what the father asked and also said he would do what the father asked. So he, he was completely consistent, completely sincere throughout. He, he gave the right answer and then he followed through on it. And the, the appeal is that, that we would uh, imitate that we would follow in, in his footsteps as people who have been forgiven as people who are uh, understand how we are, are brought into a right relationship with God. And now we have the, the, the opportunity to live that out in our lives as, as uh, people who are no longer um, ruled by the sinful nature, but have a, a new spirit within that we'd follow in his footsteps. Yeah, thanks for pointing out those connection points there and kind of the rationale. So it, it, it's different aspects of sincerity and sincerity, um, but we can uh, trace all of them, uh, yeah, kind of to this, this common theme. Well, let's go to the text then. Um, Matthew 21, verses 23 through 32. Uh, John, could you get our discussion started? Some noteworthy points, insights for preachers from the text? So our focus will be on the parable of the two sons, which really starts a set of parables here over the next three weeks for the rest of the series. Mm -hmm. We're going to look at three parables that Jesus tells in a row with the same audience. So the context is, is really important. And and pulling out something distinct and seeing how they build on each other will be important um, as we as we move forward through the through the series. And so, um, when we look at the context of the parable of the two sons and the subsequent two parables, the parable of the tenants and the wedding banquet, the the context, the setting is super important. Um, the setting is the temple courts in Jerusalem. Um, it's the Tuesday of Holy Week. So just three days before Jesus would be crucified. And 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 we sometimes call it busy Tuesday, right? Because Jesus is busy using his last moments on earth uh, to preach and teach about the kingdom of God. It's his last chance to lead people to repentance, to, to put their faith in him. 
Um, and at this time, the chief priests and elders came up to Jesus and they questioned his authority. And this is at the beginning of our, our sermon text now in Matthew 21. By what authority are you doing these things? Um, they had just, Jesus had just been received by the Palm Sunday crowd, received all those praises there. He had cleared the temple uh, for a second time. Um, it's money changers and merchants. Um, Jesus had been performing miracles. He'd been teaching with power. And so the religious leaders of Israel wanted to know who authorized Jesus to do those things. Um, and Jesus responded to their um, question with uh, a question of his own. It's, and it's not one of those things where like a, a politician or someone answers a question with a question to avoid really answering it. Um, Jesus is really going to get to the heart of it. And, and what he does is, so they ask him, by what authority are you doing these things? And he points them back to, to John, to the forerunner. He says, John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or was it of, of human origin? It's not, Jesus isn't doing a power play here. He's really trying to get to the heart of their question. Who is Jesus? Where does he come from? What did he come to do? And so these Jewish leaders, remember, they had asked John the Baptist the same question about his authority. Um, they thought of themselves, the chief priests and the elders, as the as Israel's only religious authorities, and they hadn't authorized the ministry of John or Jesus, and so they're wondering uh, who did. And of course, John had pointed them to Jesus. Uh, John said, "There's one coming after me whose sandals I'm unfit um, to, to untie. Um, there's a greater one coming than me." And so, with his counter question, Jesus really wanted these religious leaders uh, to realize that John was right. Jesus is the greater one. Um, and, and the chief priests and, and elders, of course, they chicken out by answering Jesus question. They, they think this through logically and what's going to keep them in power and keep them from having trouble. And they just say, well, I don't know. Right. We don't know where John's baptism came from. And so Jesus, I won't answer your question about authority either. Um, but then he really does answer it with the words of the parable that follow. Maybe that's a good place to to switch here. Uh, Jay, would you want to pick up and and talk us through the parable or point out some things uh, that are noteworthy there? The Jesus is calling them on their uh, unwillingness to 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 be sincere. I mean, they know the answer. Uh, that's the that's the issue. But uh, they they feign ignorance, and so he uses the example of. Two sons, dad has called them to work in the vineyard, and and the story is simple enough. I think any any parent can can appreciate what's going on here. You ask one, uh, this I, I got a chore for you to do, I got a job for you to do. In this case, I've I've got uh, work in the vineyard for you to do, and and the first son uh, says the right things and does it with um, seems to do it with a, a certain amount of joy or glee in in his voice, um, but then doesn't do it. And then you got the second son who bucks. Uh, doesn't say the right things, but comes around and and ends up doing what was asked of him. Uh, neither is ideal, of course. <laughs> the uh, there, there's a there's something problematic in each, but the the key point for the for the Pharisees is to to come to grips with the fact that they they seem to be a group that was more concerned about uh, about creeds, but didn't worry at all about deeds. They were okay with. Uh, all they were looking for was the right things to say or the right appearance, the right image to give off. But when it came to, to actually doing what God desired uh, from the heart, that was something that was missing. Um, and and with regard to the, the types of people that Jesus was reaching and had caused them great concern through his ministry that, that he was hanging around with 
tax collectors and sinners and the like, that uh, how could people of that quality, that character be entering into the kingdom of God, um, granted their their lifestyle to up to that point uh, b- before they connect with Jesus is one that is, is questionable, is bucking against the will of God. But uh, once they find Jesus, once Jesus finds them and brings them around, there's a change in in uh, what they worship, who they worship, and and where they're going with their lives. Is it fair to say that um, the parable, um, especially the second son who says, I will, sir, but he did not go, um, that really is meant to illustrate the first part of the text, uh, the attitude, this challenging attitude of uh, here the Messiah has come, it's God's will that they embrace him, but instead they're trying to pick apart uh, his authority. Is that, could we see that as maybe a relationship between the the parable and the introductory part of the text that John spoke of a few minutes ago? Or would you, would you express it a little differently? <clears throat> I think there's a, I mean, he's going to bring it back when he explains the parable. He makes a straightforward story and he's going to bring back that whole concept of John coming to you right. and where does righteousness actually come from? So, yeah, I mean, he's getting, he's getting after them for that thought of, um, they think because they are so eager to be on the father's side and do what the father says and look good, they're completely unconcerned with with really the heart of the matter where righteousness actually mm-hmm. actually comes from. Um, and and in his explanation, he just really he, you know he says he's not going to answer their question, and then he he answers it exactly with the parable as an explanation of the parable. Um, I think maybe one other point is just you know the how good that son looks that's just so eager like so respectful yes sir right away sir um and that's what the pharisees that's what the leaders that's what the chief priests that's what they looked like to the people they thought these are the good guys but then on the other hand just how terrible and disrespectful um (laughs) how terrible and disrespectful it is to say no to your father in a patriarchal society like we might not think how bad and rude and inappropriate that is. We say kids saying no to their father all the time, hopefully not just all the time when we take it seriously. God wants us to obey our parents. But at that time to say, yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, it would just be so horrible and disrespectful. Now think about the counterpart. The people that they say are terrible sinners that even every regular day um, Jew says is a terrible person, the, the fairest, they're the tax collectors and the the prostitutes, open and obvious rebellion um, against God. Those things are brought out in the parable. And then just like so many of the parables, it's it's the way that we think that things work and things are. It's actually different in God's kingdom. It's it's really just the, the opposite. The people who look right and seem to be right are wrong. Um, and the people who have seemed to be wrong their whole lives are right now, they're, they're right. I think we're going down this direction anyway, but where do you see kind of law applications uh, in a sermon on this text, or uh, how are you going to express that? Uh, Jay? I think the the, the obvious one, of course, is the saying the right things, but, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, so you get the right answer, but but you don't really believe it. You you, you don't intend upon acting it, uh, following through on it, acting it out. Uh, So it's it's religion that's academic, but but not lifestyle. Um, it it has uh, uh, 
one of the ways I think about it is it's information, but it hasn't changed me. And so I can, I can get an A on the quiz, but, uh, but then I, I, I go out and, and, and do the exact opposite of what I just said. And um, I think that's, you know, one of the challenges that, that I think um, and appropriately so for the, the church today is the criticism from our culture that, uh, that, that there's, there's a hypocritical spirit that we, we act one way uh, when we're together in church, but then, or we say, I should say one, one way when we're together in church, but when it comes to actually what that looks like or plays out in real life, there, there's a very different thing going on. Uh, at one of my previous congregations, I had a, a member that uh, worked in the customer service department at, at uh, a Walmart superstore. And, and she said, do you know the worst time to work in the customer service behind the customer service desk? Do you, do you know what day the worst day and time is the worst time to do that? I said, I, I don't. She said, Sunday right after church. And her, her conviction was that uh, church people come out of church feeling like their their sin cup has been polished clean and they want to work as quick as as they can to fill it back up again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. That's kind of the first sum. So. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I think that, you know, the just bringing that, that point home of Jesus parable, like he does, it's one of those truly, I tell you statements or the verily, verily where he's saying, Hey, pay attention to this. The tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you, like the religious elite. And then it's getting to the heart of where does righteousness come from? John was teaching you the way of righteousness. You didn't believe him. These other people did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. So if you think about that context of why did the, why did that delegation go out from the leaders to see John? The tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes are going out there because we know we're sinners and we're desperate for forgiveness. We're desperate for righteousness. They were going out there to check John's authority. And that's when he gives them, you know, you brood of, you brood of vipers. And so the crazy thing is in God's kingdom of grace, those who know their sinners have an advantage because they know they desperately need Jesus over those who are religious and look good. They have a disadvantage because they need Jesus even more desperately because they they think they don't. They're self-righteous, but they don't realize it. That's really a scary place to be. And yet for both kinds of sinners, Jesus is holding out this hope that, you know, you're standing here not doing what you should be doing. The prostitutes and tax collectors are, but the door is not shut for you. Even this last, they're entering before you, but it's open. And here I am in the last week of my ministry trying to, to get you in here. Um, and it just made me think, Jay had mentioned from Ezekiel before, isn't there just a direct connection here that makes this point? If a righteous person turns from their righteousness and commits sin, they will die for it. Because of the sin they have committed, they will die. And they're turning from the true, the religious leaders are turning from the true place of righteousness. And they're in danger of dying for it. Jesus is giving them the warning. But if a wicked person turns away from the wickedness they have committed and does what is just and right, they will save their life, which is exactly the true repentance that those who in the past had wanted nothing to do with God were doing. And so if you want to get to that specific, you know, that specific law point, you know, what can we ask the question, which son are you and say, OK, maybe we've been both at different times. Maybe there's going to be people sitting in the congregation who have been very rebellious sinners in their lives and realize the eternal danger that put them in. And then they need to remember God's love for rebellious sinners. But there's also people who have been long found 
and and our like Jay was saying, the hypocrisy are it's easy to forget why you're found and why you're right with God, and it's not your own righteousness, and that's that's a warning for um, lifelong Christians or to avoid that self righteous, holier than thou lack of desire to actually do what God really wants, but just keep up a you know Jesus will be content if I just keep up appearances. Um, that's not what it's not what Jesus is about. He wants real, genuine repentance and following of Him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Jay, kind of maybe bringing that that point home too a little bit more. There's nothing salvific about being a terrible, rotten sinner, right? If if the if the one who resists the dad's uh, invitation continues to resist, he's just in, in his as bad a place. But the, uh, the I think one of the keys there is that. The reason he comes to grips with it is he realizes what a shameful thing he's done. Like that's something culturally, like the, it's clear this is not how it's supposed to be, and something convicts him, and 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 he and he comes around. The Tim Keller had brought this out in it, uh, connecting to a different parable, but uh, the hard part for those who outwardly are righteous, or in this case outwardly are saying the right things, is to repent of everything righteous about themselves and find the righteousness not from themselves, but from but from their Savior and. That feels like so counterintuitive. How could that, you know, I, I'm doing the, or I'm saying the right yeah. things. How could that be wrong? What what could be off about that? Yeah. Yeah. Great, John. Yeah. And just in just building that point, Jay, great point. Because there's really, there's really two, there's really two ways to avoid the grace of God by being completely disobedient or by being completely obedient, right? Because neither one op- is under, under grace then. It's all under under law. I want to be as run away as far from God as I can, or I'm going to make God indebted to me by what I've what I've done. Um, and the point you made is, you know, we actually need to repent of the good things we do, that things that we think are earning God's favor, the reasons we think we're right and other people are are wrong. Yeah, Jay, and just extending that out a bit further too. I've heard it said, and and I've. I sense this in myself too. The, the from a um, you know which son are you? At at some point we're we're both. The challenge is as as we go along in our Christian journey and our Christian maturity, the the further we are, in a sense, from that that time we were living in manifests in, and, and now we've we've made some strides and and we've got a sense of what a righteous life or a, a God pleasing life looks like. Uh, the further we get away from that 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 change or that 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 big turning moment, um, the, the greater the temptation is that we take credit for how far we've come. It's not look what the grace of God has done in me, but look look what I'm doing for God. And and that shift um, is significant, but it often it comes across very subtly, and it's it's hard to pick up on, and maybe is one of the reasons why it's so easy to fall into the uh, saying the right things without without also doing the heart level work of, of saying, but do I, do I mean it? Is this how I'm actually going to go about it going forward? Yeah. John. I think that's, so what's that that's really calling for is, you know, you talk about the, the repentance that's brought at conversion, but then it's, there's, it's an ongoing life of repentance, which means I'm going to constantly be examining myself. This parable is a call to examine myself to see where am I? Am I slipping into this? Or what is it, you know, what are the facades that I'm putting up? What's fake? What's insincere? What's disingenuous in in my Christian life? 
and I'm constantly examining myself and seeing where God leads me to repentance, repent of where I've, where I have been fake or insincere, disingenuous, um, and, and go to the right place for the righteousness, the only righteousness that avails for God, because yeah. he sees through all the sham stuff. For sure. Sure. Jake? It takes me back to uh, uh, seminary classroom and, and uh, Dick Balgi making the comment one morning, um, the older I get, the more I realize how awful a sinner I am. And I remember looking around the classroom, every one of us in the class was like, what, what's he talking about? Pillar of society, uh, guy teaching future pastors. And, and it, it, it was uh, a comment that really stuck with me. There, there's an example of that heart level realization um, for it, for as far as, as he had come along in his spiritual maturity, he also realized that it was only by the grace of God that that was, that, that was happening mm-hmm. and how that, that the grace of God was still absolutely necessary on a daily basis if if his walk was going to continue. I, I, just a striking comment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so they're really helpful comments, I think, as preachers think through um, how to address this parable, spoken to a you know, little different audience to uh, people that I'm speaking to, uh, by and large believers, um, and some guests too, God willing, but, but believers, yeah, and I think that's maybe what we can help them with is, do you see signs of this first son of the second son in you and that right examining yourself to see these uh, different signs of insincerity or pushing away the righteousness that God gives. Um, Speaking of which, how about gospel in this text? Um, Where do you see it? How do you preach it? Um, Do you uh, bring in some thoughts from other parts of scripture. What about gospel thoughts and applications from this text? Jake? I think with the text itself, um, I think one is just the the patience of the father. Um, he doesn't lash out at the son who, uh, the second son who, who openly defies him. Uh, so patient, time of grace, allowing uh, opportunity for, uh, religiously speaking, for the spirit to work in the heart same would be true with the first son. Um, we we don't hear him um, coming after him in a in a punitive way. Uh, you think about what's what's going on here. If Jesus playing the role of father is actually reaching out to the Pharisees in a in a, a mm-hmm. kind of repentant call sort of way, he's he's calling them on the carpet, but it's not to shame them as much as it is to get them to see what they're doing and 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 come around themselves. So I, I, both those things are, I think, are are growing right out of the parable itself from the patience of the father and the way he deals with his sons. Yeah. Um, and I think we'll see that also in the upcoming parables, kind of this take a step back. Why is Jesus speaking these to those who are rejecting him? You see that grace coming across. John? Yeah, and in, in that connection, you know, what are we already seeing here? Jay mentioned it when he was talking about the second lesson, which is a great way to bring this out, that there is a third son, right? There's a third son. He's the one telling the parable. He's the one who did say, yes, Father, I'll go, and then actually did, even though it wasn't his job to work in the vineyard. And he did it, you know, fully, perfectly. He toiled all those years of service in our place, right? Um, and his perfect his perfect obedience at the end is treated as a life of complete disobedience. 
um, and he, he receives that punishment for us. And that's brought up beautifully, as Jay mentioned before, in the, um, in the second lesson with the humiliation, but then the exaltation of, of Christ too. And so what does it remind us of that God's grace is there for the immoral and the hypocritical because neither of those sons could earn God's righteousness and they both need a savior. And guess what? Both have a savior because whether you're caught in, in rebellious sin that leads you far away from God, or you're, you're, you're caught in the sin where you think you're close to God based on your own righteousness, which makes you maybe even more far away from further away from God. Here's a savior who, who has done everything to forgive both of those sins. And so what does it mean to, to genuinely be a Christian, to be a sincere Christian? What's spiritual sincerity? First and foremost, it's the obedience of faith, right? The will of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. To believe that we're only sinners saved by grace, and that's what we've got. And everything flows from that. Genuine repentance, real obedience, it all starts with the Savior that we genuinely, that we really, really, really need. It all starts with God's perfect Son. Um, and that what that's what changes everything for the for the rebellious sinner and for the for the hypocrite, for the self-righteous person. You know, you there's a term dead orthodoxy, right? Having everything, all the right teachings, but it doesn't affect your life. Well, really, there's no such thing as dead orthodoxy, right? Because if it doesn't affect your life, you don't have all the right teachings <laughs> right. Because a changed heart depends completely on God's grace in Christ. And that's where a changed life comes from, too. So God's grace is for tax collectors, it's for prostitutes, but it's for self-righteous hypocrites too. It's for people even worse. It's for people like you and me who have probably been all of those things in some way, shape, or form at some time or season in our lives. Yeah. Jay? Yeah, and I, I kind of doubling down on that too, that that even repentance is the work of God in us, right? That that uh yeah. um the the rebellious son with his words uh, is defiance. Um, it was because the father called to him that there's a there's something that happens in his heart. Uh, that's what Jesus is also hoping to work in the hearts of the Pharisees who are saying all the right things, but aren't, I mean, the story itself is meant to work that in their hearts. And uh, just bringing that out, because sometimes I'll hear people say, uh, to be right with God, we've got to repent. And there's an aspect of truth to that, which is it's something that happens in us, but uh, it can almost sound like that's our part, and then God meets us halfway. And And so bringing out the repentance piece as a as an act of God in us is a, is a, a gospel element of this as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me open it up at this point. Um, other um, either illustrations, applications, um, things that might be helpful to preachers as they work through the text or, or even if you've got, you know, theme ideas, um, but just kind of uh, catch all, what else might you have to offer preachers as they wrestle with this text and how to proclaim it? Other insights, John? I think one illustration, I talked about this, Jay, before. This might be silly, but um, I think it makes a point. We, where do we see fakeness in the world today, just in a general way, or insincerity, or people that are disingenuous? And um, I had the idea of a milli vanilli Christian. Mm-hmm. We all, if, if we've been around for a certain time, we all know milli vanilli. Right, Millie Vanilli, late '80s, early '90s, European R&B pop duo, Robin Fab. They won a Grammy, right? Sold millions of records. Um, had their hits like "Girl, You Know It's True," "Don't Forget My Number," all those things. Um, 
they were known for their dancing and their their leotards and shoulder padded jackets, all sorts of things like that. Hottest thing on the music scene. Um, the only problem was the outfits were real, right? The dance moves were real, but that wasn't really their voices. And that all came out, right? They they had proved it was proven during a concert that they were lip syncing, like a record started skipping, and people all found out. And this whole thing just completely unraveled because they were faking it and they were failing at faking it. They weren't really good. There were studio musicians who were the real talented people, but these guys were just all about the image, right? And what was on the outside didn't match what was on the inside. And they eventually had to admit that, give back their Grammy award. Everything comes crashing down and it's silly. And I'm sure guys can come up with a better illustration of somebody crashing and burned by, by faking it. But I think it gets us to the point of asking the question, Am I genuine in my life or am I fake? Do I have like a, do I, would somebody call me fake and, that, and say that the people who really know me um, would disagree with the image I present on social media or the way I act when I'm in a group is way different than the way I act when I'm around people who really know me, like my family members. Maybe everybody thinks I'm this great, happy, kind, patient guy. And the people who really know me know that guy's angry and has a terrible temper so we've got this curated curated person that we put out there but does it connect are we actually are we actually real and so there's a connection there to are we are we real christians or just going through the motions and then asking those questions of of self-examination um that we were were talking about so maybe the the idea of things that we notice or people that we notice that are fake in the world gives us an opportunity to ask the question about ourselves. Where are we fake in our lives? Um, where are we faking it? Where are we, do we have a, where are we spiritual or Christian Millie Vanillis that we don't have a, we have a public persona that doesn't match what's, what really goes on behind the scenes. And then I think there's some applications that follow, but maybe Jay's got something. Thoughts come to mind. One is, um, uh, popular in our culture today i think you know political correctness that you that you say the right things and there's a certain amount of fear that goes with that too cancel culture uh connects with that you know that that you say the right thing uh, if you don't say the right thing uh you, you get dismissed or the the positive side virtue signaling that you're you're giving off the right vibes whether or not you truly sincerely represent that or agree with that but that you're you're saying the right thing for for public perception so i, I think uh, if the Milli Vanilli thing doesn't doesn't resonate with everybody, maybe that's something that could could uh, uh, connect with a, a wider audience, possibly. But I truly appreciate that we brought Milli Vanilli into this discussion. So uh, the other that I that I wanted to share is um, I, at a personal level, I remember having a conversation. Remember, a previous congregation, he's going through a divorce, and it was painful. And I, it was a church work day, and, and we were talking. And I was asking how he was doing, and he said. Um, I used to evaluate people based on what I saw going on in their lives. And he said, I'll never do that again because you never know what's happening behind closed doors. Yeah. And I, I think that speaks directly to, to this. Uh, and as an extension of what John was talking about with, with regard to, you know, are, are we, are we a certain kind of Christian when we're sitting in church or when we're amongst a group of people that know us as members of such and such a church, but get outside of that group or get outside of that context. And, and are we, are we somebody completely different? And and do we see that as problematic? <laughs> that that's something that needs to be that needs to be addressed. Yeah. Go ahead, John. 
Yeah, just building off that, Jay, the the whole idea you mentioned of cancel culture judging, you really brought that together. But that is a place where you can slip in and say, like, here's the real bad people. And world the worldly people do that too. Like, here's the people we're gonna cancel because they've done something. They're they're beyond hope, beyond redemption. Exactly the way the Pharisees looked at the tax collectors and prostitutes. So I like how you got into how we think, how it makes us think about others. Maybe first and foremost, how it makes us think about ourselves, our application is when we look at how we've sinned in whatever way, when you, when you you listen to this and you say, yeah, I've been a terrible sinner. I don't know if God could love me. This is a parable that says, yeah, God God loves terrible, awful sinners. He's, his grace is for them. Or if you if you look at this and you see, you know, I've been a hypocrite. I've been judgmental. I've been a, a, a person like that. Guess what? He's he's a God who still loves you in Christ. Um, look at the, he gave up the perfect son so he could redeem both sons whenever we've been each. But then, Jay, what you said about how God's grace changes everything with how we look at other people, right? Not only how we look at ourselves, but how do we look at people outside of the church? Ch- ch- completely changes your expectations. If you're a person who has the gospel, who knows the grace of God, and you still mess up, you still become a hypocrite, or sometimes you fall into grievous sins, what can you expect from people who don't have those things? <laughs> so when you're inviting somebody to church or thinking about whether they're somebody that God would want to have in your church, you can't look at them and say, well, they're to this or they're to that. You can't eliminate people based on who they are or what they've done or what their past is, because you'd have to eliminate yourself too. And then how do you look at the people in church sitting around you? They're just as great of sinners as you are. No matter how nice and polished and great they look on the outside, there's something dark inside of them too, just like there are in us. And so what does it mean for Christian community that's real and genuine? We don't have to be fake. Can we just say, you know, I'm a sinner and it doesn't mean I have to go sharing every single sin I've ever committed, but there's an appropriate time for me to say to a brother or sister in Christ who's struggling, you know, I struggle with that too that we don't have to pretend that we don't struggle with sin, um, that our, our church could be a place where we can actually be real and sincere and genuine. And we can, it can be a welcoming place where people can say, I am a sinner and here's my sin. And then here, do you know what? There's a savior who lived and died for that sin too. Um, and and if, if the church is that kind of community, that's so grace-based, um, and that isn't shocked by sin in people's lives, because let's face it, we'd have to pretending that we're not sinners to be shocked by any sin. Um, then the church is going to be a place where people run to instead of running away from when they know they've, they've, they've messed up. That this changes us, and if this makes us genuous, genuine and, and honest and sincere people and not hypocritical people, then sinners will want to flock to this place that's grace-based and hear about the savior who saves prostitutes and tax collectors, but also saves Pharisees and hypocrites. Yeah. Jay. Beautiful. Um, I was thinking about, you know, theme ideas and and that old saying, uh, don't just talk the talk, walk the walk is one that kind of, kind of connects here. But, but then thinking about what you were saying, John, about um, a, a grace-based place, the, the, so I'm given a, an idea and that's got, it's got to get some further development, but talk the talk and walk the walk. I, I don't know if that's enough, you know, that, that, that there's got to be something more that brings out. Um, it, it's more than uh, look at me, uh, but it, it, look at the savior who I follow. And and if there's a way to kind of wrap that in, but 
the the connection between what I say and what I do is important, but then deeper the the why. What is it from my heart moving me to do what I do? What a great point, Jay. I think because the Pharisees did talk the talk and walk the walk, but it was the reason in their heart that was wrong. And so the only reason that makes it right is that we've got we've got the Savior who took our place, the third Son who took our place. He's first and foremost a Savior. But then what does He inspire in our lives? So. Maybe something like, and see if this captures what you're getting at, you know, let's get real, real repentance. You have an opportunity to talk about that is real obedience, what that is, because we have a real savior or, or something like on, you know, being genuine or genuine Christians, genuine repentance, genuine obedience, because we've got a genuine savior. And that maybe allows you to say, here's where that comes from. And now here's what that looks like and why. Yeah. Great ideas, great ideas. Um, yeah, and I one one final thought. Uh, I think of Matthew himself, um, you know, uh, recording this parable of Jesus and thinking of his own story, you know, as uh, a tax collector. Um, the kind of a, a theme that runs throughout his gospel. Uh, yeah, a, a real. I can be real about who I am, who I was, because of the the genuine love that Jesus has shown to me and how he's called me and given me this real, uh, genuine new life uh, to live in that grace. So uh, I think we'll wrap there for today, but thank you, John and Jay, for excellent thoughts, helpful to preachers as they go about thinking about these issues of insincerity and sincerity, focusing our listeners, as always, on Jesus. Have a good week, preachers. Thank you.